Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. We have a poem here. It's called Whitey on the Moon. <laughs> and uh, it was inspired. It was inspired by some whiteys on the moon. So I want to give credit where credit is due. A rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bills, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. You know, the man just up my rent last night because Whitey's on the moon. No hot water, no toilets, no lights, but Whitey's on the moon. I wonder why he's up in me because Whitey's on the moon. Well, I was already giving him 50 a week, and now Whitey's on the moon. Taxes taking my whole damn check. The junkies make me a nervous wreck. The price of food is going up. And as if all that crap wasn't enough, a rat done bit my sister Nell with Whitey on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. Was all that money I made last year for Whitey on the moon? How come I ain't got no money here? Mmm, Whitey's on the moon. You know, I just about had my fill of Whitey on the moon. I think I'll send these doctor bills, air mail special. To Whitey on the moon. I also, I want to thank every Amazon employee and every Amazon customer because you guys paid for all of this. <laughs> and that was the late eminent soul and jazz poet, musician and spoken word performer, Gil Scott Heron, summing up the way things are in his 1970 album, Small Talk at 125th and Lennox, and no less true today, with an incisive update courtesy of filmmaker Raymond Carr, as billionaires spend massive amounts joining the U.S. government in their joyrides to outer space during this massive economic crisis and instead of paying their taxes. And joining us on the show this week in the Arts Express hot seat is Washington Post reporter Christian Davenport, who signed up as a chorus of one talking head in the Discovery Plus TV special Space Titans, Musk, Bezos, and Branson. And how far will Davenport go in critiquing Bezos, whether in space or down here in his Amazon warehouses, is in question as Jeff Bezos happens to own his newspaper. Other troubling topics on the table during this conversation touch on all these feel-good space flights as a continued cover for weaponizing space. And what in the world, and now beyond this planet as well, is up with these billionaires adding trillions in wealth at the expense of the economic desperation of the masses during this pandemic? And in the case of the Bezos warehouse workers, the discovery, no pun, that Amazon has stolen $40 billion from them in wages. Here's that conversation with Christian Davenport, ranging from evasive to, well going full military warhawk regarding the weaponizing of space. Welcome to our show. As a seasoned Washington Post reporter who's seen everything, what most surprised you during your coverage in Space Titans, in particular your behind-the-scenes interview with Elon Musk? Yeah, um, I mean, the thing that gets you every time you visit SpaceX and get time with uh, Elon is just how hard they're working. I mean, we did this interview with Elon uh, at the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center, and the astronauts were going to launch uh, the next morning at 5.49 a.m., and then we didn't begin our interview with him until 11 p.m., um, and went until midnight, and, and the security had to get us out of there because they were had to fuel up the, the rocket, and the astronauts were going to show up. Uh, and yet, inside the hangar, 
where we were, it was a, it's a working factory. It's where they refurbish all of those uh, first stage boosters that that go to space and then and then come back uh, so that they could be reused. And they were continuing to work on those rockets all throughout the interview. And uh, even while we kind of got kicked out of there, so did all of the workers. Otherwise, they would have continued working around the clock. Uh, after the interview, I went back to the hotel, tried to sleep for a couple hours before the launch. But Elon, you know, stayed up all night. He went right with the NASA administrator to greet the astronauts and then went right on console to oversee the launch. So I think that's the thing that when you get that intimate glimpse at SpaceX, it's just, you know, how you know, relentless they are. They're just nonstop. I think you should watch it. I mean, what we're trying to do with the show and what I was trying to do with, with the book I wrote called The Space Barons is, is capture this moment in time. I mean, it's so much fun to be a space reporter. There's so much going on from the restoration of uh, human spaceflight for NASA's astronauts from United States soil, which we didn't have for nearly a decade, uh, space tourism missions, the Artemis program for NASA going to the moon, a uh, rover landing on Mars. China landed a rover on Mars. NASA put not just a rover, but a helicopter that flew a helicopter on Mars, a little drone. So it's really extraordinary. And then we get into this and so much more in space type. Now, your paper in the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. So what are the challenges for you of covering stories involving Bezos, such as Space Titans, and walking that fine line of neutrality when it comes to your potential criticisms? Yeah, well, we don't. We cover them the same way that we would cover anyone without fear or favor. If you just look, actually, for example, a story I had a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you saw that, but, but go take a look at that. It's a very tough look at all of the challenges that Blue Origin has had. That's Jeff's space company. Um, the, the problems with the, the leadership, low morale, uh, accusations by some employees about harassment. I mean, we, we covered that in depth. It was a very... A uh, tough story that I think shows uh, the Pointer Institute did a did a piece about how that actually shows the Washington Post is independent. Yes, Jeff owns the Washington Post, but we're going to cover him the way we cover anybody else, and that's what I do when it comes to Blue Origin. Now, you've written articles about workplace concerns at the Jeff Bezos Space Facility that includes, quote, toxic dysfunctional bro culture. Please elaborate. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, growing off this... Uh, a 21 uh, uh, current and former employees wrote sort of uh, laying out their concerns in a, uh, a public letter uh, in an essay about their concerns about the management there. We did a deeper dive uh, looking into those concerns, talked to a couple dozen uh, other employees and uh, found, you know, that there are some real concerns about the way uh, the company is being led and being, and being operated. And would you say those issues are the same and different from other workplaces? Well, I think that, you know, this is a problem, I mean, to put it in context, that uh, is a problem throughout the aerospace industry. And you hear uh, about this, and it's been a problem that's gone for a long, long time. Uh, at NASA, for example, uh, you know, women are a minority of the workforce and, and I think an even smaller minority of the leadership. And there are all kinds of efforts to get uh, women and minority into the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, math. I know uh, Lori Garver is a former deputy NASA administrator, runs a fellowship designed specifically to get uh, young uh, female graduate students placed at aerospace companies. But despite all these efforts and all the attention, there's still a small minority of it. It's still a male-dominated culture. You see that at Blue Origin. You see that, frankly, at a lot of uh, uh, aerospace companies, despite all of these attempts uh, to change that, even at NASA. I mean, one of the things that NASA is doing um, is, is, you know, to really focus on the astronaut core. I mean, you know, the first astronaut classes were not just dominated by men, but, you know, sort of a certain type of man coming from the military in the test pilot program. Uh, it wasn't until, you know, the class that included Sally Ride that they first admitted, started admitting women. And uh, now you see, uh, as NASA announces their astronaut classes, they're trying to make them more diverse. And in fact, they have said that uh, when they return to the moon under their Artemis program, that cadre of astronauts that would do that first lunar landing since the Apollo program would include a woman who would become the first woman to walk on the moon. And there have been public concerns about these billionaires spending so much money on space 
while the country is suffering a pandemic-created economic crisis, along with the just-released report from your paper's rival, the New York Times, that the workers at Amazon warehouses were shortchanged $40 billion in wages. What are your thoughts about that? Well, in terms of what uh, you know, Elon and Jeff and, and the space titans would tell you is that they have sort of a long-term vision and that there's no reason you can't do both, that you can't focus on space and uh, the problems here on Earth and at home. And if you take the real long-term uh, vision, you know, they would argue, and I'm just laying out their point of view, the way they look at it. I mean, as an independent journalist, I don't take a particular side on this. Uh, but they would say that, you know, this long-term vision in, in terms of allowing economic growth and economic dynamism and the real growth of, you know, the human species uh, that you need to go to space and that the the resources on Earth are limited. Uh, They're finite in space. Uh, They're virtually unlimited. You could mine asteroids and then leave Earth, uh, you know, preserved, as as Jeff Bezos would say, as, um, as a national park and that, you know, you take all of the heavy polluting industry and you put that out in space where there are these unlimited resources. The other thing I think they would point to is that, you know, when you, and you talk to astronauts about this, when, when they leave Earth and they see Earth from a distance and they marvel at just about how extraordinarily beautiful it is, and you see the thinness of the atmosphere and land masses without borders and just the bright colors and uh, the curvature of the Earth, that that really gives them a new appreciation for the Earth and its environment. And let's not forget that you know, Earth Day really got started in large part because of that image taken, of the, taken by the Apollo astronauts of Earth from a distance, the pale blue dot photograph. That's the most replicated photograph in the history of, of photography really helped touch off the environmental movement. Now, one issue that has been on the public mind in terms of these excursions into outer space is the potential weaponizing in space as yet another danger of world war. What are your thoughts about that and in connection with your coverage of space titans and their links to the U.S. government space program? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of concern about, um, you know, what's going on in space. And you had under the Trump administration the creation of the Space Force as the new uh, branch of the, the U.S. military. Um, but, uh, and while Trump took a lot of credit for him, actually the thinking about that came well before Trump was in office. It was just an idea that he latched onto and, and, and uh, you know, followed through on. But concerns uh, by what others are doing in space has been uh, something the Pentagon has been thinking about for a long time. I mean, all of these satellites that we have in space, these are satellites that do missile detection, missile warning, um, uh, surveillance, so that we know if North Korea is going to launch a mission, that does the GPS, right, the the guided munitions, so that the, the smart bombs and um, precision munitions, you know, hit hit the terrorist convoy and not the school bus or the wedding. Those are all, you know, uh, operated by satellites in space, and they're sitting ducks. I mean, other countries have shown they can not only take them out with a missile, but um, spoof them or change the software or render them blind for some period of time. And there was a concern that this wasn't getting as much attention. Meanwhile, to bring it back to the space titans, there are these entrepreneurs who are creating uh, a lot more capability, not just with rockets, but with uh, satellites. So instead of having one satellite that sits in the same spot, you know, and it's sort of a sitting duck there, you put up uh, fleets of satellites, swarms of them. So if one gets taken out, that's okay. You have redundancy. You've got plenty of of backup. So this is, uh, I think, a big concern and something that the U.S. government and private industry have been looking at for some time. And on a side note regarding the Discovery Plus being grabbed up by Warner Brothers, just as Disney has taken over National Geographic, no coincidence, the Hollywood growing trend to release documentaries is related to an economic cost-cutting bid at the expense of actors. Witness what happened to Scarlett Johansson regarding the challenge to her residual payments with Disney. Stay tuned. And to add perspective on what went down with Bezos stiffing those Amazon workers, here's political commentator, analyst, and contributor to the show, Jason Unruh. (laughs) 
Employer theft of employee wages is nothing new, particularly with regards to Amazon. You would think that the capitalist has gotten enough of the workers' blood out of the actual exploitation itself, but it's not enough. Apparently, you have to steal its wages. Well, now there is an internal investigation inside of Amazon that shows that for the last year and a half, that practice has been continuing. In a story by the New York Times, Tara Jones, an Oklahoma Amazon warehouse worker, was shortchanged about $90 of her paycheck. To make matters worse, Jones was a mother of a newborn baby. What she proceeded to do was email Jeff Bezos himself about the issue. Some of the words used in the email spoke to her precarious economic situation. I'm behind on bills, all because the pay team messed up. I'm crying as I write this email. Now, this email prompted an internal investigation, and what it found is that for over a year and a half, workers at Amazon have been shortchanged on their wages. They found out that this systemic error has affected more than 179 Amazon warehouses across the United States. Most of the people who suffered some kind of wage loss were on medical or disability leave. In other words, it targeted the most vulnerable of the workers that were actually at Amazon. This comes at a time when current and former HR employees also told the New York Times that workers who had been dealing with medical problems were automatically fired by Amazon's payroll system for missing too many days of work. Difficulty came after doctor's notes mysteriously disappeared from their pay system. Workers were unable to contact their case managers who worked in Costa Rica, India, and Las Vegas. According to the New York Times, the company's treatment of its huge workforce, now more than 1.3 million people and expanding rapidly, faces mounting scrutiny. Labor activists and some lawmakers stated the company does not adequately protect the safety of warehouse employees and that it unfairly punishes internal critics. This year, workers in Alabama, upset about the company's minute-by-minute -minute monitoring of their productivity, organized a serious, though ultimately failed, unionization threat against the company. Now, aside from Amazon's unethical actions, employer theft is actually a major problem in the United States. Upwards of $40 billion in wages are stolen from workers each year, more than half of that coming from minimum wage workers. Now, you would think that the super profits that a lot of the very large companies in the United States take would be enough, particularly when we look at this in the context of people who don't pay their taxes to begin with. So isn't even losing anything to the tax man. So it's, that's not even enough. You still have to steal from your employees. I mean, you already pay them a pittance. Most of them are more than half of that theft. It's from people who are on minimum wage, people who are below a livable wage to begin with. But that's what capitalism is. Reporting from Niagara Falls, Jason Unruh. And next up on Arts Express. of my thumbs something wicked this way comes And those were scenes from Joel Cohen's Shakespearean neo-war, The Tragedy of Macbeth. And Stephen Root, who stars as the porter in the film, discusses that and more, including his role as a determined dad, Bruno, 
in the just-released English-language version of that environmental crisis animated Japanese film, Pupel of Chimney Town. Root is a veteran actor who has been part of close to 300 productions in his very prolific career, including Star Trek, Murphy Brown, Seinfeld, Malcolm in the Middle, The West Wing, 24, Boardwalk Empire, and Get Out, and work with the Cohn brothers and Francis McDormand prior to the tragedy of Macbeth. Here's Stephen Root following scenes from Poupel of Germany Town. When the sky was still black, this world surrounded by cliff walls that reached the heavens, this world day and night wrapped in smoke, this world not knowing what is beyond, this world not knowing a starry sky. My pops called it Chimney Town because there are a lot of chimneys. Watch out! Out of the way! off, Pops would tell the townspeople about a world without chimneys. The town of night's last night. Bruno's picture card show is beginning. It's a story about a bright, shiny world beyond the black smoke. But everyone called Pops a liar and said, there's no such thing as stars. No one believed him. Until the day this town met that garbage man. This is the story of the town of nights last night. Welcome to our show. Absolutely, my pleasure. Okay. What were the challenges for you and also the novelty inspiration of participating in this Japanese film, both creatively and culturally? Well, novelty-wise, it's I had never done a, um, a a dubbing of a foreign foreign film, mm. so it was uh, that was the, the first novelty and challenge. You know? mm because the, the lip flaps on all the characters are obviously extremely different. Mm. And uh, it's not a matter, matter so much of rhythm, which is usually the case with uh, doing other kinds of voiceover stuff, because you're matching a rhythm, but this you can't. You really have to find a way to match the lip flaps uh, in, from another language. So that was, that was a big challenge. But it was, it was really interesting to me, uh, and I wanted to to do it just because I thought the film was so gorgeous. I had seen some uh, small bits of it and, and the animation, and, and, and that intrigued me as well, the, the beauty of the film. So being able to be a part of it, uh, I, I really wanted to do that. And the challenge was, you know, just uh, the work itself, being able to fit the English words into the Japanese. And what are your thoughts about the environmental theme in the film and presenting environmental issues in a way to make them inspirational and also understandable for children? Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's exactly the point. Um, it, it's not a, something that hits you over the head. It's just you can see how black and icky the smoke is in this and, and that uh, part of the plot 
is the the fact that uh, you can't live in that environment. You can't see the sky. You can't you can't build your dreams. So um, I, I thought it was tremendous, tremendous achievement. Now, in terms of relating to your character, Bruno, how would you say you're like him or not? In terms of how he's described as, for instance, when he was happy, he roared with laughter, and when he was sad, he cried out loud. Yeah, he's a boisterous, boisterous <laughs> guy. <laughs> um, that's not me at all. I'm very shy. Um, and the only place I get boisterous is in doing characters, you know, I'm a character actor. So uh, in terms of real life, I, that, I'm not like that at all. But I, I know so many so many people with that huge infectious laugh mm. and, and just as just as much as when they get sad they're they're they let it and out on their shoulder you know they 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 let you know it um and that's although that's not me it's always fun to play because that's a part of me that it, it doesn't come out in real life but i get to do it uh, as an actor and how about when he was hungry he got cranky <laughs> that's true. I think that's true of anybody. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm the kind of uh, person that needs to eat at ten to four, and you know, so uh, which is which is good though. I mean, eating smaller meals has has been better for me, healthy wise. Uh, uh, and I think it's the way the human body was uh, designed: the, the small meals, not not three big meals to uh, pack you up. And one more. When he was angry, he punched people. <laughs> that I don't do. No, that's not me. Um, I think uh, it, it, it was also really interesting culturally when uh, the characters would get mad or sad, the head would go down in the film uh, so that you didn't see the emotion. And that's the difference of the, the Eastern and Western philosophy. You're, you're, they're almost embarrassed with large emotion uh and uh there's there's a scene in it where i get angrier and angrier and my head keeps going down and down and down until i finally rise up and and do punch somebody but Mm -hmm. it's like almost an embarrassment of the the show of emotion and what can you say about your other upcoming film the tragedy of macbeth and working with denzel washington and francis mcdormand uh what great was, you know, this is the fifth, I think, film that I've done with the Coen brothers, or a Coen brother in this case, mm-hmm. because this was just Joel. Um, so it, it was very comforting to work with him. And uh, the fact that I had done, I had started my career with the National Shakespeare Company in mm-hmm. New York, a bus and truck company, it was like a nice uh, kind of fulfilling round around the career, you know. Um, but it was—it's a beautiful film. It's, it's shot in black and white. It's all shot like a '30s, '40s noir mm. film, um, and we didn't do any outdoor shots. It's all shot on uh, Paramount lot with these beautifully built sets. Um, very much a a throwback picture that you have to see, I think, in 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 the theater because it's such gorgeous, gorgeous work done done by the BT uh, DP. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get to work with Denzel. Oh. I mean, I, I got to rehearse with Denzel, uh, <laughs> but uh, my character doesn't interact with his in, in the play. But um, working and, and seeing all these people work in, in rehearsal, we, we had lots of rehearsals. We had maybe five table reads and rehearsals before we even got anywhere near the camera. So it was, it was just a nice community feeling that, mm. that everyone had. And uh Obviously, I'd you know known Fran Franny for a long time yeah. uh, before that, so it was just very very communal and very very loving and very colorblind, which I thought was fantastic. Now I counted at least two hundred sixty one productions you've been in. How have you actually managed all that? And regarding your enormously prolific career, you once said, for instance, going between two of them, NYPD Blue and Star Trek The Next Generation, quote, I was a lawyer one day and a Klingon the next. So what's your secret to keeping all that straight? Oh, I think the secret is just being what I am, which is a character actor. That's what I love to do. Um, I love to disappear into characters uh, and, and do extreme characters, do very 
I'll, I'll, everything that you can imagine under the sun is what I wanted to do when I started out in theater anyway. So you got to do a lot of different things in theater. It morphed into film and TV and animation, which you even get to do more character work in animation because you're not you're not on camera. You're doing just vocal work. So uh, I think it's just being being a, a character actor and and starting out in theater uh, is the reason I'm I'm still working because uh, you always need that guy for that role and and hope, <laughs> hopefully they'll continue to need me for those things. And looking back, what most strikes you about your massive career? Uh, my goal, basically, uh, at the start of doing all this was to be a working actor. You know, it wasn't to be a star. It wasn't to be you know, the, the glitz part of the business doesn't interest me. What interests me is good scripts, working with good people, learning new things every time. So um, to be a working actor is, was my goal. I'm achieving it on a daily basis, and uh, I'm a very lucky guy, blessed guy. And any last word on Pupel of Chimney Town? I certainly hope uh, everybody gets to see this film. It's so beautifully designed, written, uh, performed all the all the performances the American performances. The English version is fantastic. Tony Hale is unbelievably great as the garbage man. Antonio uh, is the, the young lead. Uh, child Luigi is fantastic. Everybody's great in the film. But I think, uh, as you said, it's, it's, it's a film that should be said. It's something that you should learn, uh, that you've got to protect the planet. And what was it like beforehand? Did you interact with any of the original Japanese cast to get into character? Oh, no, I didn't get to. didn't get to. It was very much, uh, uh, everybody did their own uh, record of it, which I would love to have, you know, but uh, we didn't get to do that. But uh, in the end, we all uh, made a, a nice product, I think, and I hope people see it. Okay, thank you so much, Stephen Root, for calling into our show about Pupel of Chimney Town and the tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, you're so great. Thank you so much. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks. And the tragedy of Macbeth opens on December 25th, and Pupel of Chimney Town was featured at the Animation Is Film Festival in L.A. John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout-out to everybody. Get political. <laughs> Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. Express. I'm Chiquita Banana and I come to say I come from Little Island down Equator way. I say I'm big and banana boat from Calabi to see if I can help good neighbor policy. I bring a song about bananas. I sing it low, I sing it high, yay, yay. And if you keep with Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Anyone who has followed the fortunes of leftist movements recently in Latin America can't help but be both heartened and chastened by the ups and downs in those economies and in their social development projects. The dynamics of building socialism in the midst of an imperialist world presents enormous challenges. Journalist Andy Robinson, in his new book, succeeds in demystifying much of the politics of Latin America by getting down to basics and tracing the trading of 16 key commodities that determine the fate of millions of people's lives. His book is called Gold, Oil, and Avocados, and I'm happy to welcome Andy Robinson to the show. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jack. Andy, what prompted you to write this book? 
Well, I've been working for my newspaper, La Vanguardia, which is the daily newspaper in Barcelona, Spain, in Latin America for about eight years now, from a kind of environmental uh, viewpoint. Um, I was often writing about mining or agribusiness, the production of exports for an international commodity market. So I kind of had the material before conceiving what the book would be. Then I kind of suddenly thought, my God, some of the stuff I'm thinking is sort of retracking the ideas of Eduardo Galeano in his book, The Open Veins of Latin America. And so I tried to sort of weave those two things together. Your book is intriguingly titled Gold, Oil and Avocados, but it is about so much more. So how would you characterize the subject of the book? Throughout most of the period in which I was working, the so-called Pink Tide governments that came to power with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, Lula in Brazil, Rafael Correa in Ecuador, Evo Morales in Bolivia, it was the first time that left-oriented governments with a big popular base came to power simultaneously in Latin Mm -hmm. America. And it seemed obvious that some degree the weakness of those governments was a consequence of the, an excessive dependence on the export of some of these commodities, mm-hmm. be it oil in Venezuela, iron ore and soy and, and other agricultural raw materials in the case of Brazil, copper in Chile. And so I tried to sort of explain to my readers in Spain why that might have occurred. A lot of economists warned of the dangers of the so-called curse of raw materials and being dependent on an international market, which sort of undermines your economic sovereignty. A lot of these governments seem to fall into the same trap and the right wing came to power. So I also tried to explain that political shift One of the main points that you make in your book is that you talk about how countries that want to build a socialist society seem to be constrained by two main possible pathways to accumulate wealth for social development projects. So I'm talking about extractivism or low wages. I mean, China, I guess, has been the the example for developing economies of how a low-wage economy has enabled prodigious economic growth. That was always the challenge for Latin America. I spoke to people in some of the pink tide governments who said, listen, you know, we rejected that path. The only way to do it was to base our economic growth and the ability to generate foreign exchange from the export of raw materials and commodities. That terrible dilemma exists I've tried to sort of in that chapter on gold link how our, in some ways, decadent financial markets ends up causing such terrible damage to the environment and to people. And the same with other raw materials, which are discussed in other chapters, you know. What I'm trying to understand, and I I hope you can help us with this, is if I'm a country like Brazil or Venezuela, let's say, with oil reserves, why wouldn't I want to sell it? What are the dangers of predicating my country's economy on a natural resource for export? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, if you compare Mexico, for example, with Brazil, you can see two different paths. I mean, Mexico tried to compete with China uh, using the North American Free Trade Agreement with the United States and Canada to develop a low-wage manufacturing economy. Uh Brazil didn't do that. Either wages were held up by the Lula governments. Lula successively raised the minimum wage. And the need to export and generate foreign exchange was present in both countries. Brazil was done more by the export of particularly big food commodities. And also, there's a chapter in the book on iron ore, which the, um, the mining company Vale, which became one of the biggest mining companies in the world, mainly through the exports of iron ore to China. Exports. So what's wrong with that? Why, why is that a problem? What's the problem with it? Well, the problem with it is 
it's an extremely volatile cycle. Raw materials, be it gold, be it iron, be it copper, soy, uh, at some point, prices collapse. The prices for these commodities are set at an international level, often by by speculators mm-hmm. in a, a market in Chicago uh, or Wall Street. And, you know, you know, the left was always its kind of principal challenge was to re- recover economic sovereignty after centuries of dependence on colonial powers. You can't really do that by selling soy on an international market. Uh-huh. It's out of your control, as we saw graphically in 2012, 2013, 2014, when the price of oil collapsed, creating huge problems for the Venezuelan economy, but also caused big problems for an economy like Brazil, which you know, it's obviously a lot more diversified, does have an industrial base. But it doesn't seem to me to be an accident that the fall of Dilma Rousseff uh, happened simultaneously with the collapse of commodity prices on international markets. You mentioned that Brazil was doing great while the Chinese were buying iron ore, and then what mm-hmm. happened? We had a period in which Chinese construction industry, both through public investment, the creation of, of new cities with uh, and at the same time, a new automobile industry creating a huge demand for iron ore. It wasn't sustainable, even in China. China reduced its spending 2013, 2014. Um, so the demand for Brazilian iron ore fell. And that happened. That, that's also true with Venezuelan oil. Uh-huh. Uh, if there's any kind of tentative lesson, you must always be in control of the prices for the products that you're exporting, which means that you have to somehow industrialize. In Latin America, there's understandably not many paths that are available. And there's a war between the extractivists and what I guess you can call the anti-extractivists. So not only on the world market, but domestically, there are all kinds of tensions that happen because of the need to extract the natural resources. Yeah, that's kind of, it's a fascinating sort of divergence in the Latin American left. It's been very, very noticeable in Bolivia. An indigenous movement actually was extremely critical of Evo Morales, who was the first Latin American indigenous president, to the point that uh, Pablo Solon, one of Evo's closest allies and actually a minister in his government, ends up supporting the attempted coup against Evo in 2019. And it, you, sp- you spoke to some small farmers and people who had been displaced in their way of life. Yeah. There's a chapter on soy and a chapter on beef, both uh, situated in northern Brazil. In the chapter on soy is located in an area of Bahia. If you go Inland, you know, a thousand kilometers from Salvador, you reach a sort of massive deforestation is taking place. Deforestation is going ahead at a, a, a rapid rate in order to create space for soy farming. And I met some small farmers from uh, Latifundio, a big, big farm owned by a, uh, a Rio based banker who had basically displaced communities of mainly Afro-Brazilian farmers. You know, what goes on in these areas of Brazil is hair-raising. One of the young guys who I spoke to had been shot in the leg by private police who were protecting the the soy farm, you know. The link between organised crime, small farmers or environmental activists who are being murdered in, not only in Brazil, but right throughout the region, and big Soy farmers often using capital, which is channeled from investment funds in the United States and Europe, is really shocking, you know. This is not to deny that Lula in Brazil and Morales in Bolivia lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty, but this is to highlight just what the yeah. challenges are and the, and the limited choices. And what I really like about your book is that you start from very simple, basic products that we take for granted, and you trace how their journey from the third world to the first world results in life-changing circumstances and politics. Now, we all understand, for example, that people have fought and died for gold and silver. Hmm. 
But what about potatoes and avocados and quinoa? <laughs> People would say, I mean, potatoes really, I guess, isn't a commodity. It's not exchanged on an international market. But I thought that I'd been in southern Peru and spoken to, to you know, Aymara and Quechua potato farmers there. And there seemed to be something kind of irresistible about putting across their thoughts at a, at a moment of extremely damaging climate change, which is causing droughts and forcing them to change the areas where they grow the potatoes, etc. It grows in the cold, right? That's, that's one of yeah, the advantages. Yeah, climate change that's taking place means that it's less resistant. One of, one of the elements in that chapter is that what's called the chunyo, which is actually a dehydrated potato, which was developed by indigenous societies over thousands of years, which can be conserved for years. In order to create the chunyo, you need frost. And it's extremely important for the Aymara and Quechua food security. That is... Uh, being threatened by the fact there is no longer frost in the areas where they live, you know. There are some important fundamental commodities you discuss that we may never have even heard of. Uh, niobium, coltan? Uh, niobium is, when alloyed with steel, it makes steel extremely resistant. The, a lot of the niobium deposits that aren't being exploited at the moment are in an indigenous area, which is in the state of Roraima in northern Brazil, and it's in the Amazon. So you can imagine the kind of this sort of extremely aggressive uh, extreme right ideology, which basically supports doing anything necessary to get the underground treasures out, whatever the environmental cost. Andy, your research encompassed visiting so many countries and getting familiar with many people from different indigenous cultures. What was writing the book like for you? How has it changed your outlook in life? I've always been extremely interested in Latin America, and I've always found it a kind of an extraordinary place. There's a quote at the beginning of the book, which is from Frederick Jameson. He's a, a Marxist. And he says, you know, Latin America is the only region of the world where you have all of the modes of production ever employed by humanity all in the same place, you know, and, and that's true. You know, you can go to, to Manaus in the Amazon. There's a cluster of relatively high-tech electronics companies there which make televisions, mobile phones, all the rest of it. Do you know, if you travel 70 miles from there, I visited a, a community of indigenous people who were living a life that was based on very small-scale production of food, hunting, in a relationship with their immediate environment, which is probably very similar to that of their ancestors from thousands of years ago. The way that I kind of tried to sketch out what needs to be done was to some extent by talking to small farmers and indigenous people. Well, there's this common denominator, which is this idea of good living, which is translated into to, to, you know, five or six different languages but it always seemed to me in the same from Chiapas to the Bolivian Altiplano to the, the Munduruku indigenous people. That's the community we're fighting against the big dam, you know. They all have this idea of the good life actually is linked to cohabitation with nature. And, and I'm not probably the person to go into it in great detail, but it certainly all the sort of indigenous thinkers, Davi Kopinawa, who's just wrote a book about five or six years ago called The Sky is Falling, in which some of these ideas of a, of an alternative philosophy coming from indigenous thinking. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Andy, as we wrap up, what do you see happening in the next decade in Latin America? Well, you know, if you'd asked me that question two years ago, I would have been extremely pessimistic because, you know, my experience, I've spent a lot of time in Brazil and Bolsonaro is absolutely hair-raising. And, you know, it looked like the collapse of the left was pretty much throughout the region two years ago. But then we had, the first thing we had were those amazing protests in Chile, the fall of 2019. I went to Santiago de Chile during those the, those processes, and I thought this is 
first time I ever had the feeling that I was kind of witnessing something close to a revolution, you know, because mm. it was the whole of the working class and big parts of the middle class were out on the streets for demanding radical change. There are elections on the 21st of November this year, and it looks like, at least in the second round, Gabriel Boric, who is a, a leftist, is going to win. You know, Brazil, and if they don't invent some means of excluding Lula like they did last time, it looks very likely that Lula would win the elections mm. next year. Uh, Venezuela seems to have kind of emerged from the crisis thanks to a, a very progressive foreign policy in Mexico under Andres Manuel López Obrador. That seems to be being uh, channeled in the right direction too, you know. So I, I feel, feel more optimistic. I guess that that makes it even more important to energetically debate the kind of policies that have to be implemented and the sort of model that is going to be adopted this time, you know, because and try and learn from probably the failures of that first decade of the pink tide governments. Well, thanks so much, Andy. I highly recommend this book by Andy Robinson, Gold, Oil and Avocados, A Recent History of Latin America in 16 Commodities, published by Melville House. Thank you, Andy. Thanks very much, Jack. I really appreciate it. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Music you've been listening to is Drill for Oil, performed by Jim Kunkel. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.